This is the Contractor's Corner podcast series from Solar Power World. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Contractor's Corner. I am Solar Power World Editor-in-Chief, Kelly Pickerel. And today, I'm talking with Brent Elderfer, who is founder and CEO of Community Energy, a national clean energy project developer headquartered in Pennsylvania. So thanks for talking with me today, Brent. Yes, good morning, Kelly. All right, so how did Community Energy get its start? Were you first involved with wind power? We were. Um, Co-founder Eric Blank and I, um, he's in Boulder, Colorado, and I'm in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We started out actually 20 years ago with the thought that we would need to clean up the power grid for climate change and other reasons. And we thought that renewable technologies, first with wind and then solar, would come down enough in cost to get to scale and generate power at utility scale or a scale necessary to make a difference or have an impact on climate change. So that's been our premise from the start. And wind generation uh, reached that cost profile first. The cost came down to make it commercial, right? And um, then in 2009, we started in solar, seeing the same cost curves. And um, it has come down 80%, as you know, in the last 10 years, solar costs at scale. And so we're hard at it, building solar at the scale we think hopefully makes a difference on climate change. What was it like in the, the late 90s to even think about starting a company like this? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Um, first of all, it went fast, but the reaction, as you've probably seen, changes, right, every few years. So mm-hmm. when we first proposed wind energy in the mid-Atlantic, for instance, and in Colorado for that matter, but particularly in the east, east of the Mississippi, where there was the lighter wind regime, the reaction was, wow, that's too expensive and it's, uh, you know, there's not enough wind here, so why are you proposing that? And then similarly with solar 10 years ago, well, it's too expensive. It's good for calculators and satellites and maybe uh, RVs and campsites, but it's not going to work at scale. So the main difference, I would say, has been the conventional wisdom or the acceptance of the fact that now solar is an efficient, cost-effective technology that is in demand by utilities and large and large power users. That's the biggest difference I see is just the reaction. So you got to fight your way in at the beginning, right? <laughs> right. So what's your wind-solar makeup today? Are you primarily just setting up relationships for solar projects now? We are a full-scale solar developer, so we have not developed wind in the last several years. We may be back to it as part of a uh, vision that we have to try to get not only individual projects built, but to be part of a blueprint that would get renewable energy to scale in particular regions. So that may take us back into wind. But we have been for the last five and more years uh, solely in uh, utility-scale solar development. Mm-hmm. Okay. So community energy is big on developing customer-focused clean energy solutions. So what does that mean? Well, it means that from our start, we have tapped customer demand to bring new technologies into the market. So with wind, we approached universities and other customers that, including residential customers, 
once we got the program in place, to offer wind energy to those customers if they were willing at that time to pay a premium. And so by focusing on the customer, we were able to bring wind energy into regions that hadn't seen it before and where the utilities weren't uh, looking to buy it just by tapping customer demand. So that's always been our focus. More recently, as you've seen in solar, we've followed the same route as our other developers of building large-scale solar projects for corporate, particular corporate customers. So, for instance, in Virginia, we developed an 80-megawatt solar farm on the eastern shore of Virginia more than five years ago when the total solar in Virginia was 12 megawatts. And uh, we found a good location, developed the project, but it didn't get done until we found Amazon, who, as you know, uh, a big part of the Amazon business is Amazon Web Services. So they have large servers that consume a, a lot of power. And one of those was in Northern Virginia. And uh, we bid into them to supply their request to supply that server with solar power out of our 80 megawatt Virginia solar farm. So again, we were able to launch that in a new territory at scale by going directly to the customer. And then if I could follow up briefly, what's happened since is we've developed another 100 megawatt solar farm for Amazon in Virginia. But even though we'd like to be the only person in the business, there are now 3,000 megawatts of solar projects in the queue in Virginia. And the utility Dominion has purchased uh, several hundred megawatts of solar. So we have been fortunate enough to be able to lead the introduction of wind and solar into new parts of the country. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned, I mean, you're working in Virginia, you're working all across the country, um, but you're also very active in energy policy and education in your home state of Pennsylvania. So why do you think it's important to have such a significant voice in, in local solar matters? That's a good question. It's really the policy decision for most companies, including us, is how much time and effort should we spend and do we spend on trying to move state or federal policy forward for renewables. Um, so Pennsylvania is one state where we're active, and that's where we're headquartered. We also have offices, like I said, in Colorado and North Carolina. So we're active in policy in several states. We've been active in New York, Minnesota, Colorado, um, Virginia. Um, more recently, we've been back near our home office because there's been um, some policy initiatives in Pennsylvania looking at whether we could expand, now that the economics are better, solar power in Pennsylvania, which currently is less than a half a percent. And legislative policy in Pennsylvania, the portfolio standard, um, tops out at 0.5%, half a percent. And a proposal that we and others in the industry and not just in the solar industry, but other advocates for climate change solutions are pushing that and have done a study to show that you could easily do 10% solar in Pennsylvania up from less than a half a percent, not only economically, but because of the profile of solar in the summer, uh, you would actually reduce, you could reduce wholesale energy prices if you got to scale in Pennsylvania. So that's what has gotten us active recently here, as you said, in our home state. But it's similar policy considerations 
everywhere. Ohio's in somewhat of a battle right now on whether to expand renewables or not. Um, New York has some really nice policy initiatives for expanding solar. So it's a decision we've always made to be part of that policy, but you, in a business, need to watch how much of your resources and dollars uh, you divert to that effort because it's a long-term payoff. For sure, yeah. So like yeah. we mentioned, uh, you've been doing this for 20 years. So how has the Power Purchase Agreement, the, the PPA, how has it evolved over the last two decades? Well, that probably is the the biggest factor right now in growth of utility-scale solar. Uh, First, because of what I mentioned, the private PPAs from companies like Amazon, Google, and others, Facebook, um, and not just tech industries, but others. And most recently, you might have seen that we announced a PPA power purchase agreement with the city of Philadelphia so that it's taking the lead on signing up for a 70 megawatt solar project to power part of their electric load. And get to your question, how it's changed is it's changed in solar by in the last several years, economics have allowed forward looking corporate and municipal customers, like the ones I mentioned, um, to actually drive forward on climate change solutions without waiting for utility or state policy action. So that solar project, that PPA that the city of Philadelphia announced is 70 megawatts. That's about seven times larger than the largest project in Pennsylvania, solar project in Pennsylvania at the moment. So may not be exactly a change, but it's um, it's realization, the economic an economic realization that you can customers and PPAs can move the needle on getting to climate change and hedge energy costs along the way, right? Because you got no fuel volatility or other costs. So the change would be in the private PPA scale for solar. I would say would be the number one, and there are others. The term um, as more of the financial uh, investors in solar, Wall Street and other firms have come to see solar is a pretty nice investment because it basically sits there and produces energy for 25 years with very little maintenance and a warranty to back it up. So as that money has come in and, and providing capital, um, you've seen the kind of Wall Street optimization that you'd expect. So we would originally want 25-year power purchase agreements. Wall Street is pushing to see if they can get, not only Wall Street, but large customers, if they can get a 15-year power purchase agreement to shorten the term. And can they hold their yield and still finance the project? More recently, there's been a push to try to get the 12-year power purchase agreements, which are a little bit tough because it raises the price. And um, happy to talk more about the financing, but those are the two areas we've seen the biggest change, the scale and the impact from private PPAs, and then the optimization and lower cost of capital as more sophisticated capital comes in as uh, investors. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So you're the developer, but how do you choose which EPCs to construct the projects? Have you built relationships with major installers over the years, or are you accepting bids on each project? 
we we have developed relationships as you'd expect, but um, this industry at scale is mostly um, bids, as it is in probably most construction businesses, and um, many times at our level as developer, we're also bidding into private corporate PPA requests. There, part of that sophistication on getting the lower costs is doing competitive procurements. So mostly um, we have bids to uh, procure the offtake and the PPA, and we use bid processes um, to find the best EPC for a given project. Okay. So you mentioned this big Philadelphia project and stuff you're doing in Virginia. What are some other efforts that Community Energy is working on right now? Well, we've always been... um, across the country outside of California. So we have uh, Utah projects that we're working on. We have uh, many in the Midwest, in the central Midwest, um, Kentucky, Kansas. And then we have Virginia, New York, Massachusetts projects as well. So each state is its own policy, its own country in some ways, um, and its own characteristics in terms of solar resources and power prices. Um, so we, like others, are selecting where we think the best opportunities are. But um, the Rocky Mountain West, Ohio, Central, out to Kansas, Central, and uh, the East Coast have been all areas that we, we have been and are actively developing projects in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Have you been exploring energy storage at all? Yes, we have. So that is an interesting um, part of the solar industry, right? Um, as we get to scale, getting that storage piece in place to extend the hours is uh, is the next challenge. In fact, we view it as wind prices came down, solar prices came down, now storage prices are coming down. So it really does let us get to scale. Um, one of our most interesting projects, not the largest, but um, under the New York program, which has a really fairly a really well designed program to deliver the revenue stack, different pieces of revenue for solar storage projects as part of their community solar effort. So we have a two megawatt solar project with four hour duration, so an eight megawatt hour battery that uh, I'm really excited about because um, with my focus and our focus on how do we get to really 80% carbon reduction by 2030, which I think most of us accept has to get done um, that storage piece is critical. And I particularly like our New York project because we're trying the four-hour storage right off the bat rather than one or two-hour. And um, look forward to integrating that over the next six months into the, the wholesale power production profiles of uh, the New York ISL, which is where you really can optimize the economics once you can match that, you know, best local, you know, locational marginal pricing, get the best pricing you can for each hour of production. So when you've got that four-hour duration, we can really shape that solar curve to maximize the power output. So that will be one of our first um, complete solar power, solar storage together. I'm very excited about it. Now, do you see that um, a lot of the storage that you guys might be installing, it's going to be alongside solar or maybe some standalone storage? Well, for a start, and for us, since we're in the, um, you know, solar business, but also climate change, 
we are interested in coupling it. Mm-hmm. But just as uh, the investors optimized and shaped the financing for solar, um, we would think and expect that optimizing storage is going to be the same thing. So it will not necessarily need to be with or adjacent to solar. At the moment, the tax credit um, for solar and storage, um, you know, pushes you in that direction because mm-hmm. you can get the tax credit. You're charging the battery with storage. So you're being pushed that way to some degree by tax policy. But that's just the, uh, that's just the nose under the tent or the introduction of storage onto the grid. And ultimately, it will be placed uh, where it makes the most sense for transmission and uh, and already has, actually, for distribution enhancement and uh, competition for, uh, instead of replacing distribution assets with new upgraded assets, you might be able to extend them with uh, storage at the right location. So I know that has really ha- that's already happened in the Southwest and other places. But for us, as a renewable developer, we're concentrating on tying it to the solar development. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... What are your goals within the solar industry? What do you hope community energy accomplishes in the next few years? We really want to be, as we have from our, uh, as our mission has been from the start, to be part of getting to that scale that I mentioned, the scale necessary to generate reliable, affordable power with an 80% reduction of CO2 by 2030. So, of course, that isn't only community energy, but to get there, uh, requires the kind of economic and best development practices that we've always followed and others have joined um, to see if we can get to scale. So pick a, pick a state or a region and look at what it takes to get 80% CO2 reduction. There's a mix of resources that include wind and probably offshore wind near the coast but solar is a principal piece of that. So we would like to be part of getting that, those thousands of megawatts in place. It's obviously part of our business success, but probably more importantly, it's necessary to the overall mission of how does solar take its, uh, take its place in sometimes I call a solid state grid or a carbon, carbon free, decarbonized power production. Now, is this 80% reduction, is that just kind of your personal, the company mission, or um, where, are you, where are you getting that number, or where are you expressing that? Well, we adopted that from the, the climate change goals, the IPCCC um, recognition that if we're going to stay within two degrees centigrade rise, um, some say one and a half degree centigrade rise is safer um, to avoid really catastrophic uh, impact than their target was an 80% reduction by 2030. Um, some folks talk about 2040 and 2050, 100% or less, and that's interesting to me, but because our mission was always to make a difference in an economic way, mm-hmm. uh, we've selected that measure from that overall view. That is, if you, you can't get to 100% by 2040 if you don't get to 80% first somewhere, right? <laughs> and uh, we think that number is uh, from the 
from the latest science, pretty much in agreement. I'd say fully in agreement, other than maybe some political objections. Um, it's going to mean an 80% reduction, in our view, by 2030. And that's significant in terms of changes to the power grid, but it's also economic and possible. So that's our mission. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I hope you guys you know, can make a real big difference. I've just been thinking lately, it's been so hot here in Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm like, this is this is every day now for the rest of our lives. This is like what our world is. So we kind of really need to take those steps to, to bring things down. Isn't that true? And no matter where we live, I heard following the women's soccer in France, right? Paris had never seen a week like oh that. Gosh. So high, high temperatures in Paris are tornadoes in the Midwest, uh, or hurricanes. I mean, it's just, thankfully, it's uh, a little harder to deny it than it was 10 years ago, but it still means we better get in gear, in our view. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Well, thanks, Brent, for talking with me today about community energy and what you guys do in the solar industry. Kelly, it's a pleasure. This has been another edition of Contractors Corner. Join us each month as editor Kelly Pickerel chats with solar installers across the country. Thanks for listening to the Solar Power World podcast. Visit us online to hear more great podcasts, view industry videos, and read our great editorial content. SolarPowerWorldOnline.com. See you back here next month.